I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and wherever you are in the world, it's a pleasure to have you with us for Series 8. And I must give a big shout-out to listener Adam, who, at the end of last year, started listening to this podcast from the very beginning. Series 1, Episode 1, and has very nearly caught up. So, much respect to you, Adam, and thank you for listening, and so glad that you've enjoyed the episode so far. And now for today's episode, my first guest is a screenwriter and the author of three books. He was nominated for two Writers Guild of America Awards for his work on the HBO series Westworld, and his fiction and non-fiction have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, and Wired. Here to tell us about his latest novel, Interior Chinatown, it's Charles Yu. Hello! Hello, Joe. Lovely to have you with us. Uh, And my second guest is an associate professor of English at Cornell University and the author of many books, including two collections of poetry and four novels. His columns, essays and poetry have appeared in The Guardian, Los Angeles Times, The Black Commentator, LA Review of Books, Brick Magazine, New York Quarterly and many more that we can't mention here. Here to tell us about his latest novel, Unbury Are Dead With Song. It's Makoma Wangugi. Hello, welcome to Book Off. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you both with us. And there's this beautiful sort of tranquil water sound coming from, I think, where you are, Charles. It is. <laughs> is that a waterfall or something or a water feature? <laughs> sort of. We're staying in a rental house, uh, This my family and I, this week, and it's the pool. I'm sorry if it's disruptive. But... Oh, it's not disrupting at all. It's uh, it's yeah, very. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it in, does make it sound very peaceful. It does. It, it, in yeah. some ways, it's uh, you know, I might lull myself to sleep here in the middle uh, if I'm not careful. <laughs> um, and thank you, Charles, for getting. I appreciate you're on the east, uh, west coast, so it's very early there, uh, and you've got up very early to speak to. So I appreciate that. Uh, and Macoma, you're on the east coast, and um, had mm. a had a. I'm very jealous of your breakfast this morning. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was telling Joy I had a curry goat stew for breakfast, you know. <laughs> so, and it was so good. I started with one bowl. I ended up having two bowls. So, so actually, if I end up sleeping, it will be because I'm full, you know, like my yeah. stomach is full. <laughs> with, with the combined, like, goat curry and sort of tranquil water sounds, I mean, we'll all be uh, yeah. nodding off, won't we, if we're not careful? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But it's great to have you both, both with us, uh, both from uh, each coast of America. And over the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about these two brilliant new books that you've written. We're going to talk about your writing, get some book recommendations. And of course, we do The Book Off, where each of you is going to pitch a book that you absolutely love, that you think we should all read. And we're going to give you three minutes each and only three minutes to tell us why you love it. That's coming later, though. First, let's uh, talk about uh, Interior Chinatown, Charles. This is a book about actors, about acting also about stereotypes. Perhaps you could just set up the story and, and more specifically the style of this book for us. Sure. Uh, yes. Thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, it's, it's an, it's a novel in theory and in, in practice, but it's written in the form of large parts of it are written in the form of a script or a screenplay. Um, for a fictional television show uh, called Black and White, which is very much like Law and Order, or you know, Law and Order is sort of the classic that um, is patterned after, and it, it's taking this uh, kind of fictional show, Black and White, and exploring the life of a background character within that show, who is the Asian guy in Chinatown unloading the van who normally doesn't get any lines, doesn't have kind of an independent story within the world of this show, just has incidental sort of appearances as, as a bit player. And the idea is using this construct of a police procedural, um, you know, as a kind of oversimplified view of, you know, sort of how Asians have been traditionally portrayed in TV and film in the U.S. and and taking that and saying, what is this guy's life like? You know, what 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 does he do when he goes home? What does he do in the 23 hours and 58 minutes when he's not on screen? And, and so from there, I just sort of, you know, I kind of had fun with it and, and explored his story. I really felt that you had fun with it. That what what comes across from reading it is well, for me, pure enjoyment, because I really loved it, but also I got the sense that you probably really enjoyed elements of this <laughs> when you were writing it. There were parts that were fun, which is not normal for me. Usually writing isn't that much fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, I was... There were parts that were painful, you know, I mean, both in terms of getting to something that that touched on a nerve for me personally and you know, exploring the character in ways that made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. And also just as a writer, because I was stuck for years. I, I wrote uh, at least two other full versions of this book that just I had to, you know, get rid of my my internal sense and also my, you know, my closest readers, my editor, my agent kind of worked with me and so it how, just wasn't how working. Long, how long is this taken then to 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 get to this final 
uh, draft? Yeah, I think close to seven years. And wow. uh, yeah, it's, and it's not a long book. So when I think about, <laughs> I could have just written 20 <laughs> words a day and I would have actually <laughs> been fine. <laughs> Don't think about that now. Don't think about that now. <laughs> I want to come back and, and talk about uh, the book a bit more, about Hollywood, about cliches, and about the, the characters in this novel, Charles. Um, McComer, if I could come to you, though, uh, mm. and talk about Unbury Are Dead with Song. This is a, a book about the power of music, about the power of song. Mm. Perhaps you could set up the story and, and the main characters in this one for us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, like Charles, I'm interested in uh, with playing with form. So in the, in this book, uh, the, the the story is told by a journalist. You know, a tabloid. He writes for a tabloid. You know, for a Kenyan tabloid. So yeah. So in fact, one of the comments in so in a, in one of the rejections I got from a publisher. You know, the publisher was like. You know, your book is just too realistic. I was like, but no, it's fiction. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, but anyway, yeah, so, so the journalist um, happens to be in an underground CD boxing club called the ABC Boxing Club in Nairobi, where it happens that there'll be a competition to see who can sing the best Tizita, right? Tizita is a form of music. It's, it, to my mind, it's one song, actually, that, it's, that has been sung over very many generations, and it's very... Uh, it's very, very personal to Ethiopians, right? You know, so you'll have uh, Ethiopians who will argue over dinner about who is the best Tizita musician, right? If you sing a bad Tizita song, you know, it can destroy your career, right? So it's, it's maybe I should put it, it's almost like a national treasure, right? So you don't mess with it, you know? So there's a competition taking place. Uh, so he happens to be there and he hears the song and then he decides he really has to follow the musicians back to Ethiopia to learn more about the Tizita. So there are four, four competing, uh, four competing Tizita musicians. One is the diva, sort of glamorous, right? Uh, one is the Taliban man, young, you know, does like, I don't know, Tizita rap. <laughs> uh, then there's a the corporal who is a former war. He has, he has PTSD. He was in the Ethiopian Eritrean war, right? And then there's Miriam, who is a bartender. She's about 80, who is a bartender at the ABC. So yeah, so, so he follows them home. And then when he gets there, he follows them back home to Ethiopia. And when he gets there, he realizes that you know, then he starts like, to unpack their lives, you know, and they have their secrets and so on and so forth. Um, but it's, it, but the general storyline is something that happened to me uh, around the 2000s when I had my first Tizita, right? And those were the days when we, we didn't have Google. I, so I was in a party where there was some Ethiopian, somebody played the Tizita. It was the, the days of cassettes or CDs. At any rate, I was never able to find this song, and I kept looking for it, right? You know, so in a way, so so in a way, the character John Mafred, who is telling the story, helps me, um, you know, come to to that first moment of hearing this very very beautiful, uh, sublime, I would say, music. I uh, had to look up Tazita, obviously, as probably everyone will do if they read this book, mm -hmm. and I found that you had actually um, created a playlist, which is very helpful, of Tazita. And uh, I've been listening through it. I really love um, Asta Aweke. Oh, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, Asta Aweke. Um, I mean, she's just an amazing Tizita, one of the most respected Tizita musicians. So I don't speak Amharic. You know, I, I don't speak a word of Amharic or Tigrinya, right? So, so, but those are the songs I listened to for maybe like three or four years. And, uh, like, if you had met me at a party back then, that's all you'd have listened to, right? You know? yeah. <laughs> that's what I listened to until <laughs> finally... Um, <laughs> You know, until finally I could start to hear, to hear what they were saying without necessarily understanding the words, right? You know, but that, that's what I listened to obsessively for mm. for years. Yeah. 
and actually yeah. there's a there's something to be said for um the power of music anyway even if you don't really know the lyrics even if the lyrics or the words are in in a language you do understand you don't always have to hear them to be moved by the music and i think that's that's yeah. partly what i got from tazita you know it's it's uh yeah and like like you'd have to see the voice as an instrument right you know so yeah. eventually you start listening to the voice and then it's another instrument with other instruments yeah. you know playing yeah 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 um charles you said um that you know parts of this book were hard to write parts of interior chinatown were sort of tough for you um and i wanted to to delve into that a little bit because obviously it, it, i i found it very entertaining and in parts very humorous but obviously there's a sort of underlying message there um as i mentioned at the beginning about stereotypes about asians in hollywood and in america and your parents are immigrants from taiwan so i wondered how much of their story and experiences you put into this book yeah um that you know the book actually you know there's a kernel at the core of it and that it would be a, a a lot of my parents and people in their cohort, you know, that came from Taiwan in the same generation, a lot of their experiences that I, you know, grew up hearing their stories or just watching them sort of try to um, figure out, you know, how to become Americans or try to figure out how to make a life here and raise their families and have careers. And so, um, you know, I think emotionally and in terms of, um, there are biographical details sort of at the center of it that I then kind of played with and, and fictionalized, uh, wrapped in layers of sort of, you know, fiction. But um, at the core of it, really, it, it came from this feeling of them having left Taiwan uh, and, you know, uh, spent most of their lives here. My parents are both, you know, either a little over 80 or approaching 80. And so they've spent two thirds of their life here much longer than they did in their quote home country. But there is a sense of displacement, you know, because Taiwan has changed a lot, you know, in that time. And I, I think, um, and then of course they haven't, to at varying times in those decades, they felt more or less at home here. And then I think in the last few years, uh, especially with the election of, you know, the former president, and I think the, the last couple of years, this sort of recent wave of anti-Asian sentiment, it, 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 and of course the book was written before then, but I think there was a feeling just of the rising sort of populism and xenophobia, wondering what does that do to the sort of, you know, their story at the end of it does does it feel like they were on one trajectory or that they had do, do, does the kind of like resurgence of of, of anti-asian feeling does that do something you know to to that whole journey does that um sour it or or just change it retrospectively so all of that was kind of um the, yeah, the backbone of it was really trying to figure out how to tell this story that I'm not sure I fully understand uh, myself. Yeah. And of course, you you work as a screenwriter. As I mentioned, you've written for Westworld. Um, so in in sort of, um, 
how can I put it? You, you, so in writing this book where you're sort of using that form in in a way to against itself, how did you find that? You know, because it's it's sort of using some of the cliches that are in Hollywood screenwriting and putting it on the page for us to see as a sort of, you know, like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, it's, it's for comic effect, but it's also to make us really think, yeah, this is this is what happened. Yeah, it was... Yeah, so I mentioned, you know, the, the, the versions of the book I wrote and, you know, tossed. I, I tried much more earnest, sort of straightforward ways of writing them, and I, I couldn't make them go. You know, my, my default when I start writing something is, uh, you know, not my default, but my natural inclination is to look for a way in that's different, you know, that's either through some sort of genre, you know, kind of rapper, you know, some, some kind of device that allows me to have fun on a sort of sentence level. Um, and for some reason with this book, I didn't, I, I went the other way, you know, and I just had this kind of really what ended up being a disastrous impulse to say, no, this is a serious book. I'm going to write in a serious way. And, uh, and so I, I try to write sort of straight ahead, I guess, what a realist kind of fiction and, I just can't do that. You know, it turns out I'm not good at that. And it was boring, you know, it was boring and it just didn't work. It, it just felt like I was stating things without any, it just too, too bald, you know, and too yeah, nakedly yeah. emotional. The, the, the device of writing about it through the view of, uh, through the point of view of this kind of minor Asian character freed me up from that. You know, it allowed me to then just say, oh, okay, so this is already kind of weird hole, you know, peephole through which to view the world. And it just made, you know, it gave it a language that I could then kind of play around with. It gave it tropes that I think most people or a lot of people will recognize, which is, oh yeah, yeah this is the, this is the guy in the show that I don't care about. And so that it just, I was able to import all of this kind of machinery into the story. And then I didn't have to, you know, do so much, expository you know sort of bricklaying uh which was yeah so 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 it allowed me to to both have fun and then actually get to the emotional core of what i was trying to do yeah uh Makoma, you you i think you touched on this when you said you know in sort of 99 2000 you heard tizita and there's a line in the book it says you never forget your first tizita so you're your first experience was listening to this cassette, right, in, in at a party. And yeah, what, no, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and so what, what was it about that moment that then made this music become so important to you? Yeah, so, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, like, I, I recall how the party was, right, you know, so we had, you know, at that point, we were a bunch of, um, you know, Pan-African friends, right? You know, so we are from all over the continent, right? And um, the apartment was owned by Ethiopian friends. So you're just in a party, really. You know, so let's say it's around 11, you're wasted, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, usually. Naturally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then the song comes on, right? So, and it's, it's yeah, and and I think it's the way the, the melody, right? The, the, the melody, it's, it's, it's slow. It's a very slow song, generally speaking, right? There were some people singing fast. So it's a slow song. Um, but then around the same time, that's when you had the Ethiopian Eritrean War, right? There was, another, there was another bar we used to go to called the Charles River Pub. It's also in the book. 
you know, where it would be Eritreans and Ethiopians, you know, where you could see people who had formerly been friends, right? Uh, I mean, they still need to come for a drink, right? You know? Right. You know, so, but the Ethiopians would sit on one side and then the Eritreans on the other side, wow. right? Um, yeah, so, and it, it, I don't know, it, it, so I, I would say the times themselves landed, landed, um, it, it made it easier for me to hear the song, right? Maybe had I had the song a year ago, you wouldn't have registered, right? Or a year later, right? Mm. Um, yeah, but yeah, so yeah, so I would, yeah, yeah, so I, I think it was the historical moment we were in as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about how to describe the Tizita, um, I still struggle even having written a whole novel about it, right? Um, <laughs> So, you know, so some scholars, you know, some scholars uh, consider it as nostalgia or, mom, or memory, right? Uh, others think of it as a love song, right? But I came to think of it as more than that. It's so the question I've been asking, um, and it's contained in the book actually, right? Um, so you have generation after generation after generation, right? Um, how can that story be carried? Okay, what if you could have one song, right? You know that carries or that almost like a people's collective history right but in terms of their pain losses loves and so on and so forth right so so it, so it's, it's not a song about a person singing about a lost love it's not a in that sense like a, a kenny rogers song you know we spend a lot of time listening to kenny rogers in kenya actually when I was <laughs> <Did you>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can still sing you lucille you know but <laughs> we'll ask, we'll ask you to do that later so <laughs> yeah so yeah so, so yeah so so it's 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 not that sort of a, of a love song but it but it, do, it does use it does use the form uh of a lost love but it's more of a wish into uh, if it was a sure realist novel, you'd be sitting there listening to the music with your great, great, great grandparents, right? Uh, listening mm. to the song. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you don't forget, but maybe, but maybe you can tell me since you had your first visitor, like if you. <laughs> well, yes, and so the, the the one that that spoke to me the most out of your playlist, which is available on YouTube for anyone listening who who wants to sort of hear some of this amazing music, I believe it was the the second one in the list. So I very much enjoyed the f the first track of the playlist, and that w when Asta came on, you know, that's the one that spoke to me, and then I'd listen to a few more after, but that's the one that that stuck with me. So yeah, and and I suppose I was um, uh, I was taken away a bit by it, you know, I sort of felt dream in a slight dream state listening to it. Yeah. So and with, and with the Tizita, so. So unlike, let's say, when people sing the U.S. National Anthem, when they have to, like, they're showing off their voice range and so on and so forth, right? Or other songs for that matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, with the Tizitas, it's not about showing off, right? You know, So when you listen to songs from the other musicians, that's when you realize, oh, like, Asta can hit any key she wants, right? Or, um, you know, or the other musicians, right? Or Mandigo, for example. So, so, so the, the, the Tizita is almost like when they're singing it, they, ha they have to humble themselves, right? They have to humble themselves to the... Uh, uh, to the song. Yeah. You ever heard of Tazita, Charles? No. I, this is the first thing I'm going to do after we get off of this. Uh, I need to yeah, go right. look. Can, can I ask Charles a question? But only, but only because it's on my mind, right? You know, so, and, and Joe, you did say it could be a conversation. You know, of so. course. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering what you're making of. I was just listening to CNN earlier in the morning as I ate my goat stew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and they're talking about the new report, that the, the census report, and how... You know, the, the time I saw being used is how I don't know the minority, the minority majority or something. Is it majority minority or stuff like that? But all that to say that people of color would be more than white people, right? And my first instinct was, 
you know, but doesn't it mean all 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 it means is that more people are being born, right? Like at, at some fundamental, you know, naive, you know, human, I don't know, <laughs> humanism level, right? It, you know, on the other hand, though, I think we can be sure that we'll see a lot of more anti-immigrant and, uh, you know, anti-Asian and anti-black and so on and so forth. Uh, Is this in America specifically, Makoma? Yeah, yeah, in the US, yeah, specifically. Yeah. So I just wondered what, what, you, what, what, you, what you have been thinking about that. Yeah, I think the way you put it, Makoma, is interesting. It's, the, 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 it's something like the, the latest census shows, I think, total population... Uh, non-Hispanic white is still something like 58, 59%, but children mm. is like approaching oh, half. Under 18. Yeah, under, is yeah. It under 18, okay, it's something like 47%. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was fascinating to me, and it goes to what you're saying, which is um, we're now in this flux position where it does feel like we'll have increasing numbers, and the, the U.S. will increasingly look like this diverse sort of multi-ethnic, multi-racial picture, and yet there will still be regions and still be a plurality, if not a majority, of, of white Americans for some time. And I think as we've seen, that doesn't always lead to increasing acceptance. It, it can lead to tension. Um, so on the one hand, you know, I, you know, I have kids, they're, they're teenagers or almost teenagers, and um, they were growing up in such a different time and place than I did just a generation ago, and yet I don't feel equipped to talk to them about what, you know, I don't know what they're going to face. I, I think they, I'm hoping they'll figure it out because I don't, you know, I get worried, you know, and I'm not sure where that anxiety comes from exactly. What, what do you think? You know, if I could turn it back around on Macoma. Sorry, Joe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please go ahead. No, I mean, so part, no, part of it is, okay, so part of my thinking is, you know, so when, whenever, you know, elections in, in Africa, you know, the whole continent have been reported on, right? People talk about tribal math, right? You know, as if, you know, like we're so concerned with ethnicity, which is true, right? You know, that that really, yeah, people will sit down and calculate how to bring different ethnicity, ethnicities together, right? And for years, American exceptionalism has helped America avoid having that image. But when you look at what the Republicans are doing, right, the gerrymandering of districts and so on and so forth, uh, the gutting of voter laws, right? You know, so I think I read somewhere, like they're preparing themselves to be, to be a minority rule, right? You know, so, so, so they'll keep the power Right. Um, even as the uh, anyway, that's the attempt as the demographic changes. But but it's challenging. I have an eleven year an eleven year old, right? And it's and you are right. For them, they are growing up in a completely different you know uh, racial environment. That it's that at some point you know. So for example, for me, it was very important to be able to go back home every two years or so to go back to Kenya and stuff like that, right? Or to have definite roots there, right? Uh, for her, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I, but I like your response. You know, hopefully they'll figure it out, right? Because <laughs> because at some point at some point we just won't know enough. Like we just won't know enough of their reality because of you know of, of our own I don't know blinders, if you will. Does any of this for the future generations come through 
books and TV and film and changing certain things to look at your book, Charles, changing some stereotypes that, that may have already started. But does does that help? Is, is, is it a starting point, at least for a younger generation? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I do think it's still even this like fragmented age where there's a billion TV shows and my kids mostly don't watch TV. You know, they mostly watch YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And so, um, I don't know, maybe it's slightly diminished the power of sort of these big broadcast shows that used to, you know, come into our living rooms and say, here's, you know, here's what America looks like. Here's a nuclear family living in the suburbs. That's, inexplicably wealthy but never seems to work <laughs> you know like that sort of illusion is shattered there's a, a greater variety of viewpoints of stories being told so i think that does say something you know i think even i mean this might sound silly but i mean even watching commercials just the the idea of like i don't i think if i showed my kids what TV looked like in the 80s and 90s, they would be like, what is this? What, what weird universe is this? So, uh, um, I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, for instance, I, and I think it's been documented that, that it seems like um, TV had an impact in making Americans more accepting of uh, LGBTQ people, you know? I, I, and so... I do think that there's still power to the to this mass medium, um, but I don't put a lot of stock in it, you know, in terms of like okay. affecting real change. But and 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 do you think from the other side things have changed at all in terms of casting and representation on screen, whether that be TV or film? Yes, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think just as a brute fact, people cannot get away with what they used to get away with, you know, which was either completely casting, you know, like, uh, I mean, literally whitewashing some roles, you know, especially specifically with respect to Asians, cutting those parts out or just by omission, never having parts I, you know, I should speak, or I will speak specifically about sort of the Asian experience, just having been completely sort of pushed to the side or ignored for, for a long time. It's it's a bit, it's different now. So um, no question. Whether or not that's sustainable, whether or not, you know, what it looks like a few years from now, I don't know. Um, but yeah, no question that there's uh, at least an effort and I would say in a lot of parts of a sincere effort to try to be better and more sensitive about it from my, you know, narrow part of the, you know, world here. Sure. And in your teachings at Cornell, Macoma, you know, you, you teach, you're a associate professor there. And I wondered what, what is being talked about there from, from the student perspective on the East coast, you know, what, what are you getting in terms of the literature you're teaching or the things that, that you're getting back from them and the conversations you're having? 
Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to be a teacher, actually, right? You know, first cause of COVID, right? I, I think the right. nature of the classroom has changed. Yeah. You know, what I found even teaching via Zoom is that now, um, you know, both teachers, at least from my teaching, so maybe I should just speak for myself, it, 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 we are more humane. I don't know how to put it. Like, right now we see each other as human beings, right? You know, because, you know, at some point you have to be like, well, you know, I have to tend to a sick relative or whatever, right? Um, you know, and then you have this overwhelming national tragedy. And then on top of that, you had Trump. So there are ways in which the classroom could no longer be this abstracted uh, space, right? Then in, in addition to that, you had the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, you know, which again, couldn't you couldn't keep it out, out of the classroom. Um, but it also affected uh, our department, right? You know, so... Uh, we started off as the English department in 20, 2019, you know, and then last year we changed the name to the Department of Literatures or Literatures in English, right? Like just to show the plurality of, you know, all the literatures we are teaching as a department anyway. But then also as a way of, you know, to say, let's talk about decolonization, right? Let's see, let's talk about decolonizing the curriculum, you know, where the curriculum was more geared towards, uh, where, where the de facto, right? Um, you know, was was European or white literature. Then for us, teaching African literature or Caribbean, and we are just add-ons around the sides, right? <laughs> you know, so so it, 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 I guess it was just a call for certainly decolonization, but 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 you could put it differently and just say we wanted to create a more democratic, like a more democratic approach to what's being read and taught. You know, and then the students have been great. I I, I think they responded to that, but that's because of their generation, right? It, it, they're the generation that's growing around the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, they're the ones who are talking about allyship and so on and so forth. The, the, the only thing that worries me is that I think for the younger generation, they don't have a longer view of history, right? You know, so for example, when I was growing up, I mean, you know, like we had, you know, read Malcolm X, uh, Fanon, uh, Angela Davis, and so on and so forth. In other words, like, a, okay, like I could just put it bluntly and say like a radical traditional you know uh thought yeah. you know okay. I, I grew up around that but for them i don't know what, they, they don't feel as much grounded in the history that's also affecting them um yeah so yeah i've been trying to follow the discussions around the critical race theory in the u.s i don't know if you have that in in, in britain you know like that sort of pushback now from the from the conservatives right you know about teaching things to do with race and so on and so forth um you know but that but that has always existed Right, mm. that push against "quote unquote" liberal education or radical education. I think it's the demographics. I think it's the, it's the young people who have changed, you know, for the better, right? Uh, yeah. Or want to, or, you know, and, and and part of it. Sorry, I, I don't want to take all the time, but part of it is that also the U.S. has reached a point where it can't ignore its own internal contradictions, right? I, I think the statistic from a few years ago, maybe last year, or the year before, was you have, I believe, forty-six million people living under the poverty wage. Right, like it's a structural issue. You can't, you can't undo yeah. that. You can't mask that. Like you can't hide, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think, yeah. So you could add also that the the internal contradictions of the U.S. have caught up with it. Like the whole the, the Kenyan population, I think, is forty seven million people. So I ask myself, okay, imagine if everybody I saw in Kenya was living under the poverty wage. That's a lot of people. I, I get the feeling. Well, I don't get the feeling. I am daily reminded of <laughs> the how sort of much faster and more exposed to the, like a discourse that my kids are than I am. You know, my, my daughter's about to turn 14. My son is 12. He's a bit less exposed, but we've just sort of allowed our daughter to have a phone and 
get on social media a little bit. And it's just, she has a vocabulary, she has all these concepts. And I'm struggling because one, I'm catching up. And two, I don't feel, so I don't feel fully equipped to, and I also don't feel it's my place to try to say, here's context or, or here's, like basically what I'm asking is how do I talk to my daughter and what, what, <laughs> what book should, as both a dad and a professor, what book should I tell her to read? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a struggle, right? Because um, you're right, you're right. I, even the kids who are coming in as first year students, right? You can't, you know, they would have grown up around the Obama age. Like you can't keep, you know, like they, they're coming in knowing so much, right? Because it's already out there. Um, you know, then as I mentioned, you know, you have the BLM, you have the, you know, the structural issues, you have the, you know, anti-immigrant, you know. Uh, yeah, so I don't know, I'm trying to think of, so it's a tough one, really. So, okay, for, for me, what I do is, um, at least in the classroom, is to try to, ch to teach the kids to think about contradiction, right? You know, because they're coming with their own set of thinking, right? And you want them to think. And it, like you can't teach them what, what they necessarily want to know, right? But you can teach them how to think about it, right? You know, so I always stress, you know, like think about even 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 when you agree with something, where 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 are its uh, blind spots, where are its contradictions, and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of reading, uh, I'm trying to think of the books that I teach. Yeah, for example, when I'm teaching a book on Africans and African Americans, I'll teach Maya Angelou. I'll do like a like a like a longer view and then before coming to more contemporary stuff, right? But but this is why but this is why I think reading comes in, right? Reading and hopefully talking about the books if they if they want to talk at all, right? <laughs> you know, so I would say I would say reading, like a lot of reading and uh and just trying to get them to think in terms of contradictions, right? Because eventually that's a thing that will like, help them, you know, whatever they decide to do in life, right? I, I know that's not a good answer. No, it's a great <laughs> it's a great answer. I, I'm gonna seize on to that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm getting free parenting advice. This is yeah. This yeah, is I know. <laughs> and what I, what I do want to ask you is about what you've been reading and enjoying recently. I always ask my guests that because uh, it's lovely to get recommendations and and also find out what what you've been reading. Macomb, um, is there something you want to uh, talk about that that you've enjoyed recently? Can be new or old. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, when, when you mentioned you asked that question, I panicked because I couldn't think of anything. Then I remembered. <laughs> I, would, I, I can never ask, answer that question when I'm asked it. No. Yeah, then I remembered that there, there, there are two books that I've loved recently, right, uh, which are excellent. Uh, there is the, it's called The Eternal Audience of One, The Eternal Audience of One by Remy Gamija. He's a young uh, Namibian, Namibian writer, like upcoming, mm -hmm. you know, but ex in my blab, I, I just said simply he's the future of African literature, right? Because like, so for him in the book, he's, he's not so much um, obsessed with the relationship between, let's say, Windhoek and New York. So it, for him, it's not a thing of, of Africa and the West and so and that, and that sort of story, right? Right. So for him, it's a different kind of, I don't know, like African cosmopolitanism, where the, most of the action is taking place in Namibia, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, and so on and so forth. Mm hmm uh, then the other one, actually, that was that that I also blabbed. It's called "In the Company of Men." In the Company of Men by Veronique Tajo, and it's a brilliant book. And it couldn't have been more timely because it's okay. It's looking at the story is being told from the perspective of a, of a tree, right? Okay. But during the but during the time of the Ebola outbreak, 
in, so it, it's it's almost as, as if it's a book that was written for us today, but looking at another, you know, in this case, I guess it was, you could call it an epidemic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so th- th- those are the two that immediately came to mind. Yep. Fantastic. And what about you, Charles? Have you been reading recently? Uh, I have, uh, and I always get brain lock as soon as you ask. So I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's cruel. Yeah. <laughs> it's cruel, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, but Makoma showed me the way. I, I I also blurbed a couple of books, and so that's very smart smart approach. Uh, I <laughs> um, one is a essay collection uh, by Jay Caspian King, who contributes to the New York Times Magazine and um, among other things. He and he he ha- I don't know if it's out yet, but he has a book called The Loneliest Americans, and it's really looking at um, the post-65 Hartzeller Immigration Act, sort of the waves of immigrants that came after that. Specifically, he's got an eye on sort of Asians that came, you know, uh, post-65. And um, just has a really uh, fascinating, you know, lens onto... um, onto, you know, what is a very diverse set of experiences. You know, when we talk about sort of Asians in America, it's a very reductive term that, that encompasses many countries and ethnicities and, and religions, you know, cultures. Um, another book uh, by Jean Chen Ho, this comes out next year. It's a story collection called Fiona and Jane. And it's just this really funny, uh, irreverent um uh, story of of mostly of two two young women kind of growing up in Southern California and kind of there among other places and and they they just got this it's it's a great portrayal of friendship you know which I think uh, is a, a you know a part of life that isn't often explored you know it's either like sort of romance or someone's mm-hmm getting killed, you know, or, or, or I exploring your sort of inner self, you know, middle-aged guy exploring his existence. Yep. Young, young friendship is a, is a wonderful thing to, to look at. So. And when it's done right, it can be just so rewarding as a reader or a watcher, can't it, as a viewer. Yeah. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you so much for those uh, brilliant recommendations. And now it's time for the book off. This is where each of you is going to pitch us a book that you love, that you think we should all read. And the book can be absolutely anything. It can be fiction, non-fiction. It can be a classic. It can be new. It can be poetry. It can be a play. Uh, Before we uh, find out who goes first and second and who is going to be rung out by the school bell or (laughs) honked out by the bicycle horn, uh, let's find out which books you're each putting up. So, um, Charles, which book are you putting up in the book off today i'm putting up a book uh called code by charles petzold and it was published in the year 2000 um and i guess that's all i'll say i'll save it for the for the pitch <laughs> fantastic and what about you mcgummer what are you putting up for us today uh lose your mother by saidia hartman i believe it was published in 2007 fantastic uh, yep um and Makomo, if you had the choice, which you do, would you like to go first or second? Um, I mean, either way, I'm going to win, so... Uh, oh, it's fighting talk. He's coming. He's coming swinging. This is brilliant. Uh, well, then, well then, it, I suppose it doesn't matter to you, does it, if you go first or second? No, not really, yeah. Uh, so, in which case, as you're going to be the winner, uh, would you like to be uh, honked out at your three minutes or rung out by the bell, if indeed you go over the three-minute mark? Oh, I'll rather the school bell, actually, being a teacher. You'll, you'll take the school bell, all right. Okay. Uh, which means we got we got to give Charles... Charles, the uh, opportunity to choose first or second. Which one do you want, Charles? All right, okay. I'll go first. I have a feeling I'm not going to want to follow Macoma. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's he's playing mind games. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll hide under the fact that it's early here for me. <laughs> yes, you can use that as an excuse. I mean, it's not even eight o'clock or something. Yeah. You know, your your morning. Um, yeah. All right. Well, look, we're going to uh, be quiet, and you have three minutes uninterrupted if you require all three to tell us about Code by Charles Petzold. Over to you. Great. So Code is uh, a book. Um, The way I describe it is it's the book that I've been looking for or I was looking for and not and didn't know it for many years. Uh, I when I first entered undergrad, I tried first to be an engineer and I took some computer science classes and I quickly found out I was not meant to be an engineer, uh, but I did end up as a science major. And so I, you know, and I do enjoy reading nonfiction science. I find myself with the, the common experience uh, when, I, when I read nonfiction science books, which is, I think I understand what I'm reading. And then as soon as I close the book, I realize, you know, or I try to explain it to someone at a party and I'm like, I have no idea what I read. Uh, and so it has this temporary shot of like, it made me feel smart or that I grasped something. Um, code for me is kind of the book that is 
anti that. And it's especially apt now because I almost, as Joe knows, I almost couldn't get on this morning because our Wi-Fi was out and in this rental house. And uh, it's just, you know, another reminder of how much we rely on digital technology. And for me, how little I actually understand it. You know, I mean, everybody knows ones and zeros, but what does ones and zeros actually mean? You know, I like how do how do ones and zeros turn into we're looking at each other's faces? You know, <laughs> stuff flies through the air. Like that's basically magic, right? To sort of paraphrase the Arthur Clarke formulation. Like, I I I will speak for myself, but I think most people literally have no idea how that's possible. And code is actually a book that tries to take you step by step, starting literally from Morse code, you know, the idea of a binary system, to building up layer by layer to what we have now, which are these magical supercomputers that fit in our pocket. And um, somewhere along the way, there is a lot of technical stuff, and yet he does it so smoothly and slowly, it feels like, I think I get this. Now, I will say, I don't know how to explain it. I still don't. But what it at root reminded me of, it, and I think is that computation is still... A, fundam a fundamentally physical process, right? There's still something that has to happen inside of a machine somewhere uh, with switches. And like, how do those, how does on and off one and zero become this magic that we see? So um, I guess that's me grasping for a sort of larger spiritual truth to it, but that we are all kind of connected by this sort of information. Um, and that's it. I think I'm trying to avoid the honking. And I, <laughs> you've got four seconds. You've avoided it by stopping there. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, <laughs> you brought that in at uh, two fifty six. Very smooth, Charles. Very smooth. Um, wow. Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, there's a lot to lot to unpack there, which we will do in just a moment, but you can have a little breather now because it's over to Makoma to pitch his book. I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you, Makoma, to tell us about Lose Your Mother. Over to you. Okay, first I'll say I shouldn't have bragged, you know, because that was really good. And now I'm thinking about what he was saying. Because, you know? <laughs> uh, okay, just to eat maybe like 10 seconds from my time. I remember, like, I still don't understand it, like the idea of a quantum computer, right? You know, because the whole idea is that something that's on and off at the same time, like that I can't, you know, at some point, my brain just stops, you know, functioning. But anyway, so Lose Your Mother is about, uh, uh, it's, it's written by Saidiya Hartman. It's about her traveling to Ghana uh, to uh, think about slavery, right? And so she visits she, she visit slave castles, you know, Ghana has the most uh, slave castles. And my fundamental belief is that we can't understand our world today unless we understand slavery, right? Uh, unless we understand slavery as this absolute evil, right? I, I actually went to some of the same places she went. I went to Elmina Castle. And, I, yeah, and, and, and that's where you find, that's where you just understand that what, what was done in the name of Christianity and whiteness and, and so on and so forth, and of course capitalism, is absolute evil. But in, more immediately for me, the reason I love her book is because it's also speaking to uh, the relationship between Africans and African Americans. Again, it said sometimes it's, it's there's a lot of solidarity, but sometimes it's fraught by uh, by tensions, right? And at the heart of, of those tensions, the question of slavery, right? Uh, anyway, so I'm I'm writing a book along the same lines called uh, Somewhere Between Black and African, and 
I went to a village. So, but okay, in, in all this debate, there's one question that hasn't been asked. That is what happened to those African villages where slaves were taken from, right? And I visited one, and uh, I mean, you can still see, you know, they're still suffering the effects of, of slavery. It's very melancholic, depressed, and of course, very poor, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, how much time do you have left? Wow. I've, I, no one's ever asked me during the thing. Oh. Uh, you've, got, <laughs> you've got a minute left. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's, it's a book that asking very, very fundamental questions that I believe, and I don't believe those questions should, should just be for black people, uh, whether they're African or African-American. I believe it's a fundamental question for everyone. Um, when I left Ketad, it's the small village in Ghana where, you know, slaves were being taken from. I went to Bristol in London, right? And, you, and Bristol was a, was a big slave trading port. You might have, you have, I'm sure you've heard of Bristol now, of you know, the statues that were taken down, the BLM movement there, and so on and so forth. But anyway, Bristol is like this really extremely wealthy town, right? So, and the question I think people like Saidia Hartman are asking, and I'm asking in the book I'm working on, is what's the responsibility of, let's say, Bristol, this wealthy town, uh, to places like Keta, where so one inherited the legacy of wealth from slavery, the other one inherited the legacy of poverty and, and, and melancholy, you know, from slavery. So if you're talking about decolonization, what's the responsibility? Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sort of, I, I didn't want to do that really because I was, I was like, no, carry on. I, uh, go on, fi just finish that sentence because I feel bad. Yeah, no, 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 I was just, no, just that fundamental question of what's the responsibility of places like Bristol uh, to places like Keta. Or what's the meaning of decolonization if uh, if that question isn't addressed, right? You know, so yeah, so a decolonization in a bubble, if you will, or do we or do we talk about decolonization that's dealing with the historical realities that both you know both towns are still in, while one is enjoying, the other one is still suffering from. I mean, just, just oh, so much to talk about in that in that pitch, in both pitches, to be honest. Um, I must say, I don't, I, I don't know either of these books. Um, and just hearing you talk about them has made me add them to my list of books to read, which uh, which is growing ever longer when I do this series. Um, let me come back to Lose Your Mother, if I may, and and, and Charles just talk about code because um, <laughs> I don't I don't know how anything happens. I don't know how we're sat here today, and I can see you on my screen and people listening to this podcast can hear it because I pressed a button that then allows me to put it out in the world. You know, I just don't really get it. And yet, and I don't often go to science books or technology books, but if you, if there's a good one at, that looks at a sort of wider picture as well, that isn't quite so geeky for want of a better word that, that is so um, focused on one element. Actually, I, I find it fascinating when, when it is an accessible and sort of, wider picture which it sounds like this is yeah i think it is i mean i won't i don't want to soft pedal it it's not the this it's not the most di um no it is digestible it's not it's a little bit of work you know but it's enjoyable okay. to me it's enjoyable and enjoyable work i think so i i think it uh, i you know reading the news and 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 being constantly bombarded with just everything what's going on you know and um yeah i and not that it's not of course it's important i mean i first of all i, I want to read lose your mother and i also want to know when Mukoma's book between black and african comes out because that's 
that sounds fascinating. Um, uh, but I don't know. Sometimes I need a break. You know, sometimes I need to be reminded yeah. that there's also just things to be curious about still. Um, the other thing is, maybe I'm reaching here, but sometimes there, it, I, it just feels like there's so much anti-science, you know, that, that it comes from a fundamental lack of curiosity or just not believing that this yeah. thing that humans built over hundreds of, you know, or thousands of years, this kind of system of thought, or at least just a way of looking at the universe is falling by the wayside in terms of some segment of the population, at least in the U.S., just doesn't, seems pretty anti-science. So I, I just feel like even if you don't come out of it with an understanding of computers, just a reminder of, oh, yeah, <laughs> we have figured some stuff out. Maybe we should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you said from Morse code to essentially these these compact computers that now every every single person seems to have in their pockets and that are carrying around all day, every day, and that, you know, when the Wi-Fi goes down, we're suddenly like, what do we do um you know i remember when you just you know you just picked up a book and you didn't really think about anything else uh and now it's like god if you, the moment you can't use your phone or get signal and you know it's like Wah. um but yeah it's fat it, it sounds fascinating it also sounds like the sort of non-fiction and, and tech book that i actually would as you say you know enjoy working at so i'm get, get a lot from it and and put the work in um so thank you for that and Macoma, to, to your book, Lose Your Mother, uh, to Hartman's book, should I say. Wow. I mean, I <laughs> there, there's so much to talk about. And, and I think what you said about we can't understand the world today unless we understand slavery. It's just, you know, that that's such a, a, a powerful and important and truthful statement. Um, we, we here in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure across the world, saw Bristol topple the statue of uh colston i think was it, it was colston, it? yeah colston yeah. yeah yep you know which was a a huge moment and and thing on the news cycle um and i, I, I don't know i don't know what you th what what your thoughts would be on this but do you do you feel like it's uh talked about enough as in or taught about enough should i say um i i, I so i i, I that's a tough question, right? You know, um, so, but I would say my instinct would be to say no, right? I, I don't think we talk about it in, in, in any critical way, right? Because these right. are conversations that should be, you should be able to go to a bar or be in a train or, you know, or in, a, or in an aeroplane and just get into a conversation about slavery, questions of decolonization, right? They should be part of our, of our daily conversation, right? In the same yeah. way we are talking about COVID and so on and so forth. So, so in that sense, it, it's not being talked about enough, but I do think there is a new consciousness that didn't exist before the BLM, right? Uh, yeah. I think before BLM, the idea of toppling Colston, I mean, Colston, it was like the dawn of, of Bristol, right? A lot of buildings named after him. He's a big, he was a big philanthropist, you know, well, of course, money got him from slavery and so on and so forth. But, but, but I, think, I think amongst the younger people, there is a certain impatience, a certain consciousness and a certain impatience with, uh, quote unquote, the old guard, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's hopeful. I, th I think that's very, very hopeful. Um, but, the, but the question is, when do we move from the symbolic, right? You know, for example, when the, when the Colston statue was toppled, it was a BLM activist, you know, a BLM activist statue was put up there. And, and it's great. Like you can't, there's value. There's a lot of value in symbolic, in the symbolic, right? 
but I think there is also a need for material decolonization, right? And that's and and, and you know so in this case, like, like I was asking in my in my pitch, what responsibilities do? Okay, first you know, uh, let's say a town like Bristol have to its mm. own poor people within it, right? Because you know, there's a lot of black poverty in Bristol, sure, right? You know, or poverty in general, right? Uh, and then, and, and, and then along those lines, what responsibility does Bristol have to towns like Keta, where slaves were being taken from, where the effects are still being felt? Um, but I wanted to say, in addition to Lose Your Mother, I, I would recommend Maya Angelou's um, All Girls Children Need Troubling Shoes. That she, she wrote it, I believe, in the early 1960s. And it's, it's a similar journey, right? You know, so she goes to Ghana. In, in a way, you could say that... Um, Saidia Hartman's book is a response, it's a companion uh, mm. to all God's children wearing okay. traveling shoes. So, but for her, she takes the same journey. Um, and in fact, I got to learn about Keta uh, from, from my Angelou's book, you know, and she describes, she describes getting there and just, you know, first, it, it, it's almost like people recognize her, right? You know, but of course, they could, but she knows they're not recognizing her as who she is, they're recognizing her as a person who has returned. Right, you know, so so for her, it it was more a search of her blackness, right? Uh, or what does it mean to be African, or what is Africa to me? To go to the County Killen poem. Yeah. Um, so, but for for her, it's more hopeful, right? It's more hopeful. I mean, this this when the big ideas were there for Pan Africanism, Black liberation, and so on and so forth. Uh, so idea, idea writing in uh, in the two thousand doesn't have she doesn't have those illusions, right? I mean, at that point. <laughs> You know, the Ghana's dream has fallen apart. You know, you ha you have dictators all over all over the continent, right? Yeah. The poverty is rampant. I mean, your colonialism has defeated. At that point, your colonialism has defeated the dream of you know of, of Maya Angelou. So for her, it's a more realistic take. Uh, so she yeah. does ask questions around reparations, what form they should take, and so on and so forth. Um, but I just wanted, wanted to add two things. So when I when I, when I undertook the same journey, for me, the most startling thing. Uh, was going to a slave castle uh, where, um, you know, where you, you, you had dungeons, right? And then you had a church on top of it. Like, you, there was no, there was no, <laughs> there was no pretense, there was no metaphor, there was nothing. Like, literally, the church was, was on top of a dungeon, mm -hmm. right? You know, and to my mind, that captures the relationship between Christianity and slavery. And the story I had was that uh, the, the, the pious Christians you know, would pour water through the floorboards, you know, to the slaves, you know, so that to cool them off, right, as, as a sign of Christian, you know, as a sign of, I guess, you know, their, their Christianity. Um, then the other one was, the other one I wanted to mention quickly was, uh, just, I think, three weeks ago, I, I, I drove across the U.S. visiting, for the book I'm working on, um, visiting different slave sites, you know, so I went to underground railroads, I went to the lynching museum, in Alabama and so on and so forth, but I did go to Colonial Williamsburg, right? So Colonial Williamsburg is uh, a reenactment of a slave plantation, right? It's, it's a, it, okay, it's a, it's a place, let me put it this way, you walk in, you know, and you have these majestic buildings, you have people dressed as they would have back then, um, you know, but it's very genteel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost mm. like a white people's memory of, a white people's memory of colonialism. And that's the first place I've been to where I felt like I really just wanted to leave. Like I just couldn't stay. Uh, but, uh, but I was like, well, but do your research and you, you, you just have to, like you just have to walk through and see. Uh, but it was the best representation of, of how, let's say, the Republicans or the conservatives, white conservatives, the ones who are opposing the 1619 project or critical race theory, 
that's that is sort of they, they want a colonial williams back as, as the memory of, of of those days right and charlie wants to know when when we might see this book that you're oh, working on yeah so so i'm still working on it um but hopefully hopefully next year hopefully ne maybe mid next year um uh, mm -hmm. I, I meant to go to kenya because kenya also we had we had slavery right or the slave trade took place because at some point i realized well i can't i can't talk about slavery elsewhere not you know think about my own country sure. but then but then the delta variant well came along so i had to shelve those plans mm -hmm. but but that's a missing part of the book now so as soon as i get that done then yeah yeah but it's been very intense writing it yep, yeah 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 no, I bet, and but I mean, it sounds, you know, I'm like Charles. I, I want, I want to read it. So, so you know, wish you, wish you luck with the, with the rest of it, and uh, and yeah, it sounds like a very important book to, to be, to be written. Um, as, as is lose your mother, which obviously, you know, I haven't read, and just hearing you talk about it, has, as I said, made me maybe make a note of it to, to add it to the pile. Um, and I think. Charles might agree. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I think, I think I'm going to give it to lose your mother this time. Yeah, I think that's the, the winner. Oh, oh, the, the oh book off yeah. this time. But, but see, I, I predicted, I predicted my win. <laughs> I know. If only, <laughs> oh, <no>. if, <laughs> if only to make that come true. Uh, <clears throat> but a, a really wonderful pitch, as was yours, Charles. And uh, you know, I think code. I, I, I found that um, certainly last year in 2020, uh, when the pandemic had had just started, and I wasn't really able to concentrate properly on. Fiction, um, I turned to, to non-fiction a lot more, certainly in, in sort of the f first few months of, of pandemic. And um, yeah, it, it's, you know, I'm always on the lookout for a good non-fiction book. So thank you for that and for your brilliant pitch as well. And Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu is out now. It's published by Europa Editions. And Unbury Are Dead With Song by Makoma Wa Ngugi is out also published by Cassava Republic Press. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. There's there's so much we could continue to talk about, and I wish we had the time. But um, I've got to let Charles go to uh, his pool, and uh, Makoma, I've got to <laughs> let you go and cook up some more curry for your breakfast <laughs> tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. No, and nice meeting you, Charles. Really nice, and also you, George. And thank you for having me as well. Yeah. Yes, same. Thank really great to talk to you yeah. both. Nice to meet you both.